This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 41, our look at how clinical trial designs and strategies are evolving, plus from the vault, a section of the 2020 episode that asked what we could learn from past drug trial failures and set the stage for researchers to learn the lessons we talk about in this week's episode. After I share a brief history of earlier podcasts looking at why NASH drug trials fail, Jorn Schottenberg and Stephen Harrison share some ways that their own practices have changed in terms of recruiting patients into clinical trials. Both investigators note that use of non-invasive tests, or NITs, have played an increasing role in patient assessment and trial assignments. Jorn speaks more generally about becoming less reliant on biopsies, while Stephen discusses specific ways he is using various NITs at different points in the recruitment, screening, and trial assignment processes. Stephen Harrison notes in today's episode that we have data from six sets of promising trials reporting over the next six to eight months. If they produce positive outcomes, this will result in part from the quality of medications and in part from the lessons invested Investigators and sponsors have learned about improving trial designs as we discuss here and as compared to the Vault episode we're presenting. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. So we're going to get started. We announced a couple of weeks ago that what we were going to do for this episode was we were going to focus on going back to Yarn's paper from 2020 about the NASH drug graveyard. And some of the people that we had wanted to have joined that episode were not able to make it. Fortuitously, Stephen was. So we're going to do about half of that now, and we'll do half of that uh, sometime in middle or late September. The half we're going to do now is... This episode is going to wind up taking a look at issues that reflect on cost efficiency or cost effectiveness of getting NASH clinical trials done, particularly looking at two different issues. First of all, issues around patients, patient demand versus patient supply. And then if you can get enough patients into a study, uh, screen fail rates and what they do to timelines, which we'll come back to again in a minute, and what they do to cost. And then the second issue is length of process. How long does it take to get a drug through trial, given that the longer it takes, the more money the manufacturer is spending and the less revenue they are realizing? So we've got two of the best of the best to talk about those issues today. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to start by having Yarn talk about um, some patient issues and then Stephen talking about some other patient issues and we'll try trial process. I'll have questions and she'll have questions. And with that, why don't we uh, take off Yarn? Uh, welcome back. And after the run and before the Charles, is that how you, Charles, is that how you pronounce it? You'll have to. That's pretty close. Okay. okay. No, uh, not, not bad for a, for, for a kid from New York and um, right. who speaks no German. And uh, somewhere between the, the run and the you have time to do this. So why don't you get us started? Yarn Schottenberg. Thanks, Roger. And I'm happy to have Stephen on here because, um, you know, the, the time I oversee in drug development in, in NASH uh, is significantly shorter um, still. I've seen my share of trials fail or being terminated early. So that's, of course, very painful. And if you think back a number of years in the paper you're referring to was one I co-authored with Joost Drent in December of 2020. We discussed why some of the drug programs failed, and that was fresh under the impression of even large phase three trials being halted. I think we've learned a lot since then, and clearly clinical trials in NASH today are very very different. The, the discussions are driven by different issues, and some of them we've discussed at length in the hot podcast here. I think the way we talk about endpoints and biopsies is very much different. The way we use biomarkers and artificial intelligence to augment outcomes has changed the field dramatically. But in the end, we still are linked to an endpoint that's a surrogate for the regulators that's required for conditional drug approval in this arena, and all phase three trials are actually looking at that endpoint. So in the end, it's not that much different. But what's different is I think the way we select patients and the way we talk to patients about the trials. And that might be something to revisit and actually get different perspectives, uh, particularly Stevens, of course. And I can give you my perspective on how we select a patient today for a trial. 
which patient for which, which trial is always an interesting aspect. If I go, uh, if you know, if I have two or three trials running and patients eligible for both, of course, uh, pre-screening activities, considerations, predicting the baseline biopsies, all these things. And I think that has changed significantly compared to the earlier trials where we just went for the biopsy and looked at what we had. So I think it informs the drug development process and will also eventually lead to a successful ending here for one of the phase three trials we're, we're running right now. You are could you go into a little more detail maybe on what you think are one or two of the most important things that have changed or you've improved or, or, fig or figured out as a result of all that and the various conversations everyone's been having? Yeah. So from my practice, and I think it's a little different uh, in clinical trials from my practice, I used to rely heavily on historic biopsies to decide if a patient is eligible for a clinical trial. I think this is a very valid approach. We used to do a lot of biopsies and in clinical practice, looked at the biopsy, then pulled out the biopsy again, cut slices off that piece and send it off for central review. These days, we're much, much more focused on actually NITs, even in most cases, I don't have a baseline biopsy to consider the patient eligible. And we're using NITs as diagnostic biomarkers to predict both the presence of steatohepatitis, ballooning, and a certain degree of fibrosis to then biopsy a patient. That leads to a situation where you have more liver tissue going into the study, which I think is very crucial because you have a better assessment, stronger assessment of the baseline biopsy, not a short or fragmented piece of biopsy. And it also enriches for at-risk patients because clearly, the depending on which NIT has been considered, it brings in a certain dynamic for the patient population that's then enrolled in clinical trials. So I think this is my first thought that has changed for my center over years. And maybe if somebody from the team wants to reflect on how, how they do that. I know some investigators are still heavily relying on historic biopsies, but clearly for me, that has changed over the years. So Stephen, as you're point that out correctly, you see a lot more of this stuff from a lot more places than Jorn as a uh, prodigious but single-site investigator does. To be fair, reflect a little bit on his comments and tell us, explain to everybody what you're seeing that has changed. If you've got specific things that some people are doing that you think are working well that could be more broadly disseminated, this would be a great place to share that. Your floor. Stephen Harrison. Yeah, I think the comments that Jorn made are kind of where we are today as a collective group. We historically did a lot of liver biopsies. I remember the day I did five a day. 25 or 30 a week. We would wait for the results to come back. If they had bad NASH, we would entertain screening them for a clinical trial. And as Jorn said, we would carve off a couple unstained slides off the block and send them in and wait for the result. And I think either because we, well, we clearly don't do as many biopsies anymore because we use, we rely heavily on non-invasive testing. In my clinical practice, I use fiber scan and liver chemistry tests. I use the FAST score. I order CT1 and MRE in many of my patients. And more and more, we're using these specific cut points to decide who we refer to clinical trials. So not just in my practice, but I think in, in many, many practices, this is the way it's done. You know, so if I see a patient and they have an elevated AST, they have an abnormal fiber scan, often I'll order a multi-parametric MRI if the value comes back at 900, 950, something like that, above 875, that 
Person almost assuredly has NASH with some degree of fibrosis if it correlates with the fibrous scan. Then I'm, I'm going to be referring that patient to a clinical trial, at which point the patient would then be screened in, undergo the requisite labs, as well as MRI if that's part of the study, and then onward to liver biopsy, where we're still kind of relegated to a yes-no decision by a central pathologist. And we'll talk more about that, but I think that has been another point of change over the past year or two for sure. One of the ways that corporately we've seen a change in clinical trials relative to this non-invasive testing strategy are some very specific cut points that we've been able to use in real time to help redefine for clinicians what's working relative to the pathologists that we're working with in a clinical trial. And let me give you an example. So let's say we start off a clinical trial. It's a phase three trial. We need to put a thousand patients in it for subpart H approval. And we have the inclusion criteria set. We all know that's a NASH patient with an NAS of four more with F2 or greater fibrosis. And we start off by saying, okay, we know historically that there are going to be very, very few biopsies already done. We mentioned that already on this podcast. So most people are coming in based off a pre-screen strategy. We used to refine that and define that as an AST greater than 20 and a KPA on fiber scan greater than eight and a half. Patients that met those criteria were sent in, biopsies were subsequently done, and they were either screened in or screened failed. Now, what we can do is refine that a bit more. We have something that we readily use in clinical practice called the MyFibroScan app. It's on our phones, and we can simply put in the AST and the KPA and the CAP score and generate the FAST score. And we use that to help guide whether or not they're going to meet criteria for a biopsy. And along the way, we can mine that data in real time to say, okay, these are all the screen fails on liver biopsy. These are all the screen successes on liver biopsy. Let's look at the FAST score for those that made it into the trial. And so we do that at intervals now along the way where we're constantly adjusting fire, if you will. We're resetting true north to say, okay, what fast score seems to be working? For some, it's 0.51. For some, it might be 0.54 or 0.56. But we know that adjusting that in real time gives us a higher probability of success on biopsy. So over the years, and I would say particularly over the past year, we've been able to take a baseline NIT and refine it midstream to meet what our pathologists are requesting for inclusion on clinical trials. That's been really, really helpful. And we'll talk about the pathologist piece in a bit, but I wanted to just kind of address Jorn's comment on NITs and how we're using them in clinical practice, how we're using them in clinical trials, and how really they have become very helpful even in the middle of a clinical trial to adjust fire a little bit to meet the nuances of what a particular pathologist is looking for when they look at these slides under the microscope. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. I'll be off next week, but Louise Campbell will lead Jorn Schottenberg and a panel of health professionals and patient advocates discussing the nurse's role in clinical care pathways. I can't wait to listen, and you shouldn't either. I'll be back the week after that for episode 43, which will look at the evolution of combination therapies and their place in our future. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>